millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce, and this is podcast number 77. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School. Uh, we are the region's leading graduate policy school. We're based in Canberra. It's spring. It's a beautiful time of year to be here. You can find out more about Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au. Beside me, I have my co-host, Professor Sharon Bessel. Hello, Sharon. How are you? Hi, Martin. Great to be here amongst all the spring blossoms and hay fever. (laughs) And swooping magpies. And swooping magpies. (laughs) Such an Australian thing. So Sharon, uh, of course, is the director of the Children's Policy Centre here at Crawford School. She's also the ANU lead for the individual deprivation measure, which we talked about on last week's pod. But she's also acquired a new title this week because Sharon is now guest editor on Policy Forum's brand new Poverty in Focus section. Very exciting. It's hugely exciting, Martin. This is um, National Poverty Week and Thursday is International Day for the Eradication of Poverty. So it's the right time to launch this new In Focus section of Policy Forum. And of course, we already have one In Focus section on the Indo-Pacific that our fantastic colleague Rory Metcalf um, guest edits. But this new section on, on poverty will be a way of bringing together some of the research that's happening here at the ANU. You know, lots of, of the region's leading economists working on poverty, um, my own team working on the individual deprivation measure and on measuring childhood poverty, Juan Nguyen's work um, around food security, John McCarthy's work on social protection. You know, it's a space to bring all of these things together, but more importantly, a space to reach out and to talk about how nationally and globally we respond to this enormous problem of on an ongoing problem of poverty around the world. Yeah, so it sounds like you're taking a pretty broad view on tackling poverty, bringing in lots of uh, lots of disciplines. Uh. Yeah, the aim of, of this in focus section is to be very policy focused, to be very um, very very much focused on what we do to address the real life challenges, and to do that we have to be cross disciplinary, transdisciplinary, um, and to draw on people who are working nationally, regionally, and globally. So it's going to be really exciting. Watch this space. Well, the uh, section went live yesterday. How are you enjoying being an editor so far? Are you wielding your power in a in a fair and equitable manner? Yeah, absolutely fairly and absolutely equitably. Yeah, it's it's the power hasn't gone to my head just yet, but yet. but I can feel it rising. <laughs> Give it another twenty four hours. Absolutely. Or so. Well, look, today's episode is all about the machinery of policymaking, the place where political thought bubbles get brought to life by the wheels and levers of dozens of departments, hundreds of agencies, and almost 2 million employees across federal, state, and local governments. Staggering number. That machine is, of course, the Australian Public Service. And right now, it's undergoing something of a mechanical inspection. 
Earlier this year, then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull announced a major independent review of the public service to, and I quote here, ensure the ABS is fit for purpose in the years and decades ahead. Well, today we are going to kick the tyres and lift the hood on Australia's policy machinery, and we're going to find out where it's well-oiled and where it's a bit rusty and where it needs a new set of parts altogether. My guests today are the policy equivalents of expert mechanics. First of all, I would like to introduce Glenn Davis. Glenn has recently joined Crawford School as a distinguished professor. He was previously vice-chancellor at the University of Melbourne between 2005 and 2018. Before that, he was vice-chancellor and president of Griffith University. He is renowned as one of Australia's finest higher education leaders whose academic work has shaped the thinking of public servants at all levels of government. He has also been the host of one of Australia's two best policy podcasts, (laughs) The Policy Shop, which is based at Melbourne University. Welcome, Glenn. Martin, much too generous, but thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. And also with us is Professor Helen Sullivan. Helen is the director here at Crawford School. She has published widely on public policy, public governance, and public service reform. In 2013, she established the Melbourne School of Government. She's also my boss. Welcome, Helen. Hi, Martin. How are you doing? I am very good. So uh, we're going to get into our discussion on the public service very shortly. But before we do that, a quick reminder to our listeners to get in touch with us. You can reach us on Facebook where we are Asia-Pacific Policy Society. You can find us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or just shoot us through an email. We're podcast at policyforum.net. We absolutely love hearing from you, and uh, we really appreciate all your comments and questions, and we actually got a few of them um, lined up for the discussion shortly. Uh, But after the discussion, please stick with us because we're going to be delving into a few more of your comments and questions then. But for now, uh, let's just get straight into it. And I want to talk about the sort of changing nature of policy and the public service, which is a question I'm going to address to both of you. Um, You've both had long and distinguished careers researching public policy and working directly within it. How has the nature of policymaking changed over the course of your careers? Perhaps, Glenn, if we could start with you. Sure. In the 1980s, we were debating managerialism. In the 1990s, we were debating the idea of the state being hollowed out. They were both pretty accurate descriptions of what was going on. The thing I think surprised me in retrospect is how slow and long it takes for a substantial change like that to happen. But without much doubt, the public service, in particular the Commonwealth Public Service of 2018, bears not a lot of resemblance to that of a generation earlier. And that's those trends going through. So we're probably more efficient. In some ways, we're more effective But you mentioned all of those public servants, and what you didn't mention is just how much work is now being done outside government, paid for by the public, but contracted out, and indeed whole areas of service delivery. We've moved from doing them as core public services to doing them through third parties, not-for-profits, and increasingly for-profits, and yet we've maintained all the old accountability systems as though this work was being done inside government. So there's a very interesting argument, I think, to be had about the shape and nature and whether you can steer this quite different and quite complicated now network of associations through the traditional structures. So that increasing reliance on consultants and outside organisations is a pretty fundamental change in the public service. What about for you, Helen? How, how do you think the nature of policymaking has changed over the course of your career? Um, well, I'd agree with, with everything that, that Glyn said. I think 
What is of more interest to me at the moment is what stayed the same. Um, so Glynn's indicated that there, that change takes a long time um, and that um, there are very good reasons for that. Um, you know, it's why we have bureaucracies. It's why we have we hold accountability so um, so highly as a as a prize in terms of uh, public service, but there are also negative consequences to uh, the slow pace of change. And I think that one of the interesting things about governments as an institution is that although there has been all of this change, actually the core institutions of public policymaking remain very much the same. You know, the Treasury remains a very powerful player. Uh, the way in which we think about government departments remains very much the same. So you've got all of this activity going on in and around, but the core institutions probably haven't changed that much. And I think there's an interesting question about whether we think they should. And in the context of what's coming next with you know, automation, artificial intelligence, all of those things, whether we will have any choice about um, what uh, what the public service will end up looking like, I think is a really interesting question. So Martin mentioned in the intro that there's a, a review of the public service underway to check whether the, the machinery is rusty, whether the tyres are still inflated, um, but to see whether it is fit for purpose as we move forward in the, the 21st century in the face of technological change, in the face of social change. So to begin at the beginning... Do we need a review or why do we need a review at this point in time? Glyn, what, what's your thinking on whether we need a review and, and if so, why? There have been about 18 reviews in the last 30 years of the public <laughs> service, uh, some of which have produced profound change, many of which haven't. Uh, I worked on one that, that produced no change whatsoever. Um, <laughs> it was commissioned by one government. It reported to another, which thank thank the committee and shelved it straight away. And that's the fate of a lot of reviews. So you can be sceptical about reviews as a mechanism for investigation. Now, they're always – periodic evaluation is always sensible. But what's interesting about a good review, and I hope this will be a good review, is it can put new ideas in into the game. And the new ideas don't necessarily get taken up straight away, but they do in time. Helen's just mentioned technological disruption, which is unambiguously coming. Everyone can see it. There's lots and lots of jobs that aren't going to be done. Of course, the thing is, none of us know which ones they are. Um, hopefully, they're not production of podcasts, but there are, <laughs> <laughs> there are, there are many others. Um, and there's an interesting question about, are we prepared for that? How would you go about that? And what anticipation might you do as the Australian Public Service to make sure you're well prepared? That's the sort of thing a review can speculate about. They won't get it right entirely right. They might not get it very right at all, but they can at least do a test on, are we thinking about it? What are our structures? What are our processes? And that, in a sense, seems to me worthwhile work. I think that the process of reviewing, while it may appear that some have no specific impact, over time, we, you know, we have built up in Australia and in other countries a body of evidence about what the perennial problems are, You know, the things that always seem to be an issue, however the context has changed. And then um, as Glyn's indicated, areas where there's some new challenges for us. And, you know, AI is one. Uh, the other one I think that we've been grappling with for a while is the role of, of the consumer or the citizen and what the expectation is of them, of us as as users of public services in a new environment. So um, there's there's a lot that we um, have to learn from, and perhaps we don't learn as much as as we we could from past reviews. But um, we're also in an environment now where I think there 
And it seems to me the review has been receiving a huge amount of, of advice from a wide range of, of organisations and individuals. And so there is a, it's not just important that this review happens, but um, I think there's an appetite for people wanting things to be different and actually being prepared to come up and say, let's do this completely differently or let's focus on what the real problem is in a way that perhaps um, some people might have been surprised by given that we're all supposed to be now so um, apathetic about government and have no trust in our institutions. So I think there's something quite hopeful there about the extent to which um, people are engaged in in this process of review and, want, and, and you know, wanting to get people like Lynn's attention on what they think they should be dealing with. And some of the most interesting submissions, if I can say, are from ACOS and others who are arguing that that declining trust in government is because we don't treat citizens as citizens and as customers and they're not in charge of any of the processes. So why wouldn't they be cynical and why wouldn't they walk away? And urging not just a standard review of the public service, but a reconceptualization, in fact, of the relationship between citizen, those who act in their names and their political masters. And that's that's quite a challenging set of arguments because it starts at such a different point from all traditional reviews. It forces you to ask the question about why we're we doing this. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's also a, a real appetite now, whether you talk about co-design, whether you talk about crowd sourcing new ideas, new approaches. You know, these are things that um, public services in different places have experimented with. But I think there's a momentum now for not just tinkering, not just saying, well, there are some special things that we might do differently, but really saying perhaps the system itself needs to change. But that presents us with enormous challenges. And I think one of the things we really need to think about is what that means for the people who are currently in the public service or people we would like to become members of the public service uh, because they often don't have too much say over how they are represented. And certainly, I'm just thinking about something that was reported yesterday by Terry Moran, one of our elder statesmen, public servants, you know, talking about capability in the public service. And one way of reading that is, um, absolutely, we need to invest in our staff. But another way of reading that is that um, perhaps we're not uh, we're not as respectful or as appreciative of our existing public servants as maybe we might be. Uh, so I think there's something there about how we involve them in the conversation too. Well, it's almost like you read my mind because we're about to turn to uh, Terry Moran's <laughs> comments there. But that's great. You've given me the perfect kind of lead in. As, as you said, he recently commented that senior public sector staff have fallen behind their counterparts in the private sector uh, when it comes to management and strategy skills and that the government isn't investing in the capabilities of its staff. Um, uh, and we've got a listener question, in fact, someone very familiar to both of you, Janine O'Flynn, formerly of this man and now at University of Melbourne, wants to know if, if there is any basis for these claims or if it's just a case of the Australian tendency to talk down the public service. Glenn, what are your thoughts there? I think I take Terry very seriously, but Janine's right. There is, we're very hard on ourselves. Uh, when somebody argued decades ago that we had a talent for bureaucracy, it was a sort of insult uh, and treated as such. Uh, but I think what Terry's talking about is declining capability across the sector. And there's no doubt that's coming through strongly in the submissions. It's a very difficult thing to measure empirically. There's no way of saying at any one point how much accumulated intellectual capital do we have and how are we adding to it or frittering it away. But there is clearly a concern amongst those who've written submissions that we're losing 
capability and people have provided many examples from different parts of the Commonwealth where they feel that a generation earlier we had more people who knew who had careers in this area and had more substantive knowledge. Now, you know, the past always looks better, so there'll be a you have to discount to some extent for that. But you know, objectively, if you look at the Treasury, which Helen mentioned earlier, it's significantly smaller than it was a generation ago. And the Treasury didn't do a lot of clerical work. It wasn't like we've just automated. In fact, it's just got less people and less policy capability. And it's less attractive to graduates than it once was. And one of the really challenging questions for us is given the amount of work that's being contracted out, including policy work, if you're a bright, young, honest student thinking about your next career, are you going to apply for the graduate entry program for the APS or are you going to apply to one of the big consulting firms? And increasingly, I think it's the latter. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that's right. And I mean, certainly we uh, get you know plenty of y- bright young things um, and bright older things here at, at Crawford who come from all parts of the world because they feel a dedication to public service yeah. and want to be in the area that they think makes the most difference to to the world, what they then do with their careers and that training, I think, is uh, is interesting. And um, the the extent to which people will now have multiple careers, I think, is is both positive for the public service in that it enables more experience to be um, brought in, but it also challenges the public service, which rests on continuity and institutional uh, stability. Um, so there are, you know, always tensions. One of the things we've recently done is with our colleagues at UNSW and in the UK is to edit a collection on the future redesign of the public service and what would a public service workforce look like in the future. And there's some amazing contributions in that collection. But one of the things that really struck me was a contribution by Barry Quirk from the UK who talks about the continuing need for us to think about efficiency and the ways in which we understand efficiency, but also uh, a requirement to focus much more on empathy and ethics, that we need to be able, if we are to take advantage, for example, of the uh, potential of uh, technology, then perhaps that would free us up to do more of the empathetic emotional labor kind of work that that is in, integral to public services. Um, but also this bigger question of what are the ethics of of future public services and what does that mean for both individuals at whatever level but also for what we think the institution of the public service is and um, where we can expect particular levels of um, ethical behaviour. And I know, Glenn, that's one of the things that you're particularly interested in, both with the review, but also in the in the public, the future public service more generally. And it would be good to get your thoughts on, on those ethical questions. They're coming up a lot. And there's very contrary views running. So there's a group of people who are who feel we've got a pretty good integrity regime, and that, uh, yes, problems arise, but they're understandable in the scale of what we're doing. And there are people who are arguing the reverse, not that we're a corrupt public service, but that we wouldn't know, that because we've contracted so much out and we don't have the systems to, and of course there is no federal body that looks after this in the way that some of the states have developed and we've seen in other jurisdictions, that it's very hard to know because, again, there's no empirical basis for saying uh, corruption has become more widespread or is it, or is it more at threat. But you'd have to say you'd want to be confident if you're going to contract out billions of dollars at a time that you knew what you were doing. And we've had a series of clear public disasters with this, of which the vocational education one is the one that most people have lived lived through, endured, watched with horror. Um, But we've had 
appear to have similar issues in aged care. We may have some issues in disability services. These are all areas which we've contracted out most of what government does. We've contracted them out to private providers and often for-profit private providers, and we've provided incredible incentives to really get into this business without necessarily being confident that the ethics are followed. So, so, so Lynn, how do we start to address that issue? Because as you as you've already pointed out, you know, so much of what the public yeah. sector or what the public service has done has been contracted out. There are those real challenges. If if ethics and empathy are critical to the future of, of the public service, how do we start to think about that in relation to, for example, something like aged care or something like child protection? Yeah. Now, how do we ensure that for-profits particularly are taking on those values of, of empathy or thinking about ethics? Do we build them into a contract? Do we do something more? <laughs> well, we have all the formality of that. Yes, we do build it in contracts. And yes, there are standards and guides and codes of conduct and all of that. And that's important and you need all of that. Um, Martin mentioned when we started, there are two million people who work in the public sector, but there's another million and a half who work in the not-for-profit and allied areas. This is really important and growing and growing faster than the public sector. And indeed, as we push down the numbers in the public sector, we just watch them <laughs> rise in the other side of the equation. We don't invest in the training of the not-for-profit sector in the way we do standardly for public servants. We don't expect them to have the same code of conduct and to live by it and to be accountable for it. Now, that's not their fault. We're not, not criticising them for it. But the truth is, We've taken money that was in one stream that was fairly carefully subject to the ANAO and all that, and we've shifted it out and put it into a different format. It is audited, of course. It's, there are control systems, but nonetheless, who knows mm. whether we have a problem. Mm. And it's one of those things that the problems emerge as a result of Auditor General's reports yeah. or yeah. Yeah. scandals, or and it's always after the after the fact, we don't. We're not very good at accountability as a as a sort of productive, positive, future oriented yeah. activity. We've only gone halfway to some of the rules that we know we've applied to politicians about what they can do immediately on leaving politics. We don't necessarily apply to senior public servants. So there have been questions about people who've managed contracts on one side of the equation and then popped up on the other. Again, you could think about ways you might have an ethics regime that deals with those questions specifically and put some framework around them. And that's, I think, the conversation people are having. And of course, all of this discussion really takes us to an issue of trust, which we've already raised once or twice in, in this conversation. And when we invited our listeners to tweet in some questions, um, Damien sent in a question about exactly that trust. So his question is, do you think Australians have lost trust in the public service over the years? We're seeing declining respect for institutions across society, for example, parliament, the media, Universities, my goodness. Um, not and religion. Pod, not podcasts. Not, so. not podcasts, not the <laughs> ANU. <laughs> uh, religion. Does this sentiment include the APS? And if so, how can that trust be regained? What would you say to Damien? Well, I mean, we have the empirical evidence that trust is declining in, in institutions, all institutions. And the big shock for Australia probably two or three years ago was um, the f it was the first time that trust in the not-for-profit sector had started to decline, um, which interestingly had coincided with the not-for-profit sector becoming a major service provider. So you get a sense that citizens have become rather confused about the nature of institutions that they thought they once knew. And I think that's the case across the board. I think whether it's the APS or 
state public service or um, a, a, a not-for-profit institution that that is now providing public services, or indeed a you know a, a big consultancy. The way in which all of their activities have blurred and and become shared or have be you know have taken on um, different dimensions, I think it's meant it's very difficult as a citizen to understand who actually does what anymore. And, you know, the the fallback, and this is as it should be, is always that the government is responsible. But um, that's really not a good enough uh, response uh, to give. And so I think there is, you know, alongside the question of trust is this question of do we really have a clear understanding of where responsibility for things lies. And very often as users of services, we don't. And we also feel very disconnected. Uh, And we know this in Canberra, you know, uh, people feel very disconnected from the centre, from the Australian public service. Uh, But that happens also at at state level and at local government level, because people don't necessarily feel that they have an understanding of um, what it is that uh, the public service means anymore. Um, And what they know is that things are being delivered or not delivered um, by organisations they may not recognise. And so I think there is a there's certainly a decline in trust. What you do about that, I think, requires something like a review to really get at the heart of, you know, are there are there particular challenges which if we do them well or if we put them right, um, will start to to reinstate trust. The obvious one is aged care, but the other one, of course, is the um, National Disability Insurance Scheme. You know, that, it seems to me, is something that has great promise, is experiencing all of the things that we as public policy people understand about the rollout of new public policy ideas, um, but still has the potential to reconnect um, users with providers in completely new ways, but in ways that, that build trust into that relationship. But that's that's hard and it requires a great deal of, of, of work. And this then comes back to the question of capability and whether we have people with the right kinds of capability to, to do that sort of work. We talked earlier about the future of the public service and I want to turn, turn back to that again. What kind of public service will Australia need in the years ahead? How does it operate and what does it look like? Perhaps, Helen, if we can... Get your thoughts first. I think it will certainly need uh, to be uh, much more diverse in all in all ways than it than it currently is. So certainly, uh, I'm by that I mean diversity of uh, of the people who work within it, um, which I think is is getting better, but is still not as as good as it as it could be. But I also think we. One of the challenges for the public service and the public sector more broadly is that we we keep adding capability demands and expectations. So um, the the book I referred to earlier has this you know it's a great collection of um, of new things and new capabilities we would like public servants to have. You know we want them to be stewards, we want them to be curators, we want them to be um, you know boundary spanners, we want them to be all of these things. But we also want them to still be the experts, the administrators. The so and this is a problem that the public service and public sector has that private companies don't have, um, you know, and, and which is why I agree strongly with Glyn that, you know, just importing things from one sector to another doesn't help. You know, we have different expectations of the public service. And so while there are very good reasons why we need people to be able to really understand what it means to be collaborative and to practice that and to understand what it means to, to be empathetic and how emotional labor fi- figures in their their everyday work and the techniques as well as the the ethos 
ethos of co-design. You know, all of those things are really important and we want people to be able to do that. But we also still need people to regulate. So we need people who understand how prisons work and how they should work. And we need people to make sure that um, the systems are, are running properly. So my sense of a of a future public service is that um, many of the things it might do will be different. And indeed, many of those things will, I think there'll be an extension of the things being done outside of things we would conventionally recognise as the public service or public sector. But what we need to rebuild or redesign or completely rethink if you're ACOS is, you know, what are the core principles and institutional um, foundations that must be be there. And I think that's a slightly different combination of things than, than, that we've, than perhaps we've had in the past. So much more to do, for my, to my mind, with things like expertise and, and ethics and empathy than, than perhaps we've had in the past. But um, it's, that, it's a hard one to call because um, we will always need people who can regulate an account and, you know, give an economic analysis of, of something. And if that if that isn't in the public service, then we need to be very sure that where we're going for that kind of information is trusted and can be trusted. Exactly so. We should also not um, miss how much good work is already underway, including in, in sort of core service delivery. I, I hope you haven't had reason to go to a motor vehicle um, <laughs> registry office recently, but I moved house and I had to, with some trepidation, I put hours aside assuming I was going to take a number and sit in a bench. I was in and out in three minutes with my revised license. They had someone at the door triaging, oh, yes, you'll go to here. They'd, they'd specialised the services. They'd integrated the back of house operations. It was a superbly swift an entirely pleasant experience, and I walked out genuinely shocked, <laughs> uh, but delightedly so. And and you, many people have similar stories. You can talk to people about the improvements in service delivery. It's not universal, and of course, in the very big agencies, it's a real, it's difficult just because of the volume you're dealing. But motor traffic's not a bad example of what it takes. So there's good work going on. People, in this sense, have learned from the private sector because private sector service delivery is often because it's competitive, it's sharper. And the public sector's done a good job in many ways of learning from that and importing where it does make sense. And that, so I'm, I'm with Helen. I think a lot more of that sort of work will be done outside core agencies. And that means the core public service will likely be smaller even as we're a bigger nation. But the policy work isn't going away. And it goes to Helen's opening point that the institutions of decision-making haven't changed. We still have a cabinet and treasury and central policy agencies. We still have to check everything for legality and so on. And all of that's going to continue. It doesn't lend itself to dramatic automation. You certainly can improve parts of it and paper flows. And But in the end, a group of people have to look at this, think about it, write about it, debate it, and then get together and make a decision. And that isn't going to shift. So it's thinking about how that fits into the broader system. I'm sure there would be a few of our listeners that would be listening to that fascinated, but also perhaps wondering where they can get their license renewed in three, <laughs> in three minutes. <laughs> so in, Carl in, in Carlton in Victoria. <laughs> okay, so that's where you need to go, listeners, if you want to get your license renewed. Um, I want to pick up on the issue of technological change. And there was another lis uh, listener submitted question. It was from at EcoPubPol on Twitter, who 
asks, how ready is the APS to manage emerging disruptive technologies, blockchains, AI, etc., that are threatening existing markets' approaches to public service delivery? What specific capacity and governance deficits will need to be overcome? What are your thoughts on that, Glenn? So there's a lot of really interesting work going on. Uh, The Digital Transformation Agency has done some really interesting... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thinking about the way blockchain can help because it can verify identity, it can enable you to get through many steps of a process that are currently difficult. And you know, there are complicated things, much more complicated than license renewal, mm-hmm. uh, particularly security matters. And this is where blockchain can really happen. But I don't think anybody in the public sector would argue that we're well positioned at this point to, to use that technology productively. And some of our very big legacy systems, and I'm thinking in particular the IT systems supporting social security and health are astonishingly old by IT standards, are kept together with uh, teams that use languages that have disappeared from the Western world. And we do run really big risk that we haven't thought about how we can provide underlying platforms, IT platforms that will allow digital transformation. And part of the reason is because we're organized as we are into separate departments and agencies and silos and we're running multiple systems. And so for the first time, we're hearing a conversation we haven't heard for quite a while. And do we put those things back together? Is there a basis of a service agency that supports the entire APS and integrates those systems? Something that used to happen with IT when they were mainframes and you had no choice, we abandoned Um, If we want to go back to that, there's serious costs and disruption to our structures, but that's the argument we need to have. What does the platform look like that enables you to be flexible, responsive and quick? And we don't have it. So we've we've talked somewhat about the the decline in trust. The theme that often runs alongside of that is the rise of populism. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on on this. We had a fantastic podcast just recently on populism and the, the rise in populism in democracies around the world. But how well are public service models coping with the rise of, of populism, but particularly the, the rise of highly partisan politics, perhaps as part of that? Oh, well, I've been thinking a fair bit about this because I'm talking about this tomorrow at the uh, IPA National Conference. Um, I think Australia often feels itself to be um, somewhat uh, protected from from all of this. Um, and I'm not entirely sure that that's strictly the case, um, which isn't to say I think that that we're in a um, a really dangerous situation in in the way that perhaps other other countries are. But I think there is an issue that of of complacency which we we need to guard against. And my concern in Australia is, I think, more to do with the the disconnect. Not so much the hyper partisanship, which I think 
uh, the established parties have so far managed to accommodate in ways that, you know, perhaps Brexit was, was perhaps the closest example of, of, of where, you know, it was something of a surprise that something that had been contained for so long spilled over. Um, so there's you've got that politically, but I think the the, the fracture lines are more between um, the political decisions that are made um, for reasons which are to do with attracting or appealing to a particular group, and the the lack of capability on the part of the public service. And here I'm talking about senior public servants mainly to push back and to respond with evidence and uh, argument. And I guess, and this is tricky territory, but I think, you know, one of the the ways in which you see this in Australia is the ongoing debate about climate change. You know, Australia was was kind of way ahead of, of other countries in the denial of, of, of evidence and the, um, the fracturing of a discourse, you know, way before Trump or Brexit or anything else. So um, I think Australia has its own manifestation of partisanship. It just expresses itself in a in a slightly different way, and I think that's why we need to be careful. You know, looking overseas, um, we we're we're attracted at, at the models um, that we see of what we might think of as a reversion to populism and the, uh, the revival of the of the hero leader. That's the case, but each country will experience the frailties and the vulnerabilities in its own way. And I think Australia is going through a version of that, both with climate change, but also with um, the, you know, the poor behaviour of, of the banks and, the, and, and what's come out of the Banking Commission. Um, so I think that there's, uh, there are ways in which um, the seeds of that kind of fracture might be being sowed in Australia that we're, we're perhaps looking in the wrong place. Um, for for challenges, you know, it might not be that we end up with a, a hero leader who sweeps all before them. It just it might be a different, um, more insidious way of of undermining um, both our governmental decision making that that Glynn's described so beautifully, um, but also what that means for the role of senior public servants in saying, at some point, we are the guardians of an institution. And that's a difficult thing to manage when you are also required to observe the direction and the wishes of the government of the day. There was plenty of nodding of heads around the table with some of the things you were talking about there. But there was one thing I would like to go back on in particular, which was Brexit. Because Brexit, I think, is probably a clear example of that very question. It was, you know, uh, uh, the public service model suddenly having to cope with something quite extreme and, you know, something which perhaps they hadn't done sufficient planning for. What are your reflections on how the public service in the UK has coped with Brexit, drawing out this kind of sort of broader lessons we might learn about how public services can cope with sort of hyper-partisan politics? So I won't pretend to have a clear sense of how the UK public service, the civil services dealt with it. Uh, I'm actually going to, to London next week and doing a series of meetings uh, with senior service leaders to talk about the APS review, but actually I'm looking much more interested in hearing them how they're going to cope with Brexit. And you're right, the extraordinary circumstances, to have to worry about whether there'll be food, uh, how lorries will be landed and and made secure, how um, how flights will happen between, you know, this is just extraordinary territory and no, no modern government's ever had to deal with this level of, of complexity. And to think it's entirely self-imposed in a sense, it's um, so they've walked into it and then discovered precisely what it is they're going to have to do and none of us really know where it's going to land 
Uh, I hear uh, Prime Minister May claiming that they're close to having sorted it through, but I'm, I'm not sure that anybody else is believing that. Uh, I wanted to reflect on an aspect, though, that's interesting. I'm, we have had a period like this in, in Australian history before. It's the 1890s. And we had wild economic fluctuations. We had major ideological wars between those who wanted to close borders and those who wanted free trade. Um, it was, of course, in some ways, there were parallels and massive distrust of politicians. We were one of the world's first democracies, and by the 1890s, people were already not trusting governments. One of the responses, and a surprising response, was to take lots of core business out of the hands of politicians to actually reduce the scope for democratic politics. And i give you the most famous example was the big battles of the time were over where the railways went because it really mattered to you whether you got a railway or not. And after enormous dysfunction in New South Wales, they introduced the first statutory authority, which was to run the New South Wales railways. And, and the politician who introduced it said famously, this will take railways out of politics and the politics out of railways. And he was right. And the railways worked extremely efficiently and they were able to make evidence-based judgments about where the line should be. And that model was followed. Really, we did a lot of that sort of work in Australia um, all the way through to the, to the 1990s. So we had more than 100 years of that sort of approach. And you can think of dozens of different areas. We began to dismantle it during the Hawke-Keating era. But in the 1990s, we had a, a report, the Ulrig report, which actually recommended against statutory authorities. And a lot of statutory authorities were absorbed back into departments or were absorbed into departments that hadn't ever been there. It is possible that one of the long-term structural responses to what we're going through will be a return to that idea that there are parts of the operations of government, that it would be better if we took them out of the political sphere because then they'd actually work. And climate change might well be one of them. Irrigation might, you know, you can think of the issues that might come up like that. That might be one of the unexpected consequences of populism and dysfunction might drive us back to a, a more technocratic sort of solution. So some good outcomes can come out bad things. That might be good news for uh, Theresa May. Well, yeah, and, and it's interesting, The you know, because one of the responses to Brexit, which nobody, uh, well, nobody anticipated Brexit. So um, one of the responses has been a huge increase in the number of public servants, civil yes. servants, um, because there are now all these things that have to be done that nobody expected would have to be done. Um, and that's interesting for a government um, that has prided itself on being committed to reducing the size of government, um, by which it means reducing, not reducing the, you know, the number of ministers, of course, but reducing the number of public servants. And so there's a, there's a certain irony in the, you know, the default position is actually we need more people who know how to do this. And those people are by and large, civil servants. Um, so uh, that's intriguing, and, and it sort of goes a bit to Glyn's point about you know one of the one of the options might be to shake out some of the old ways of doing things and saying actually they worked for a while. Why don't we try them rather than you know sort of looking for the unicorn that you know that is is going to um, you know offer something new and exciting. And I think that's one of the real challenges for all public services in democracies, the fascination with the new and the different rather than we've got some models that have worked in the past and maybe, you know, there's a time that these models will will come back. So I think that's that's true. But the point that Glenn made about the technocracy, I think then brings with it its own dangers. 
um, yeah. because um, you, you know, lots of people who will argue for, for technocratic solutions to things um, are people who absolutely don't want um, democratic politics to, right. to prevail. So it's, you know, none of these things are, are, are simple. It's always a balancing act between how much technocracy and, and, and how much, you know, democratic participation. And in the 1890s, as I was talking about, there are only a handful of democracies in the world yeah. And it's possible that 30 or 40 years from now, there'll only be a handful of democracies <laughs> in the world. It's true. And that the technocracy idea, the Singapore model, will be the dominant form. It's not, un not unthinkable. It's not unthinkable. And it certainly connects to the, uh, you know, one of the other issues that we haven't talked about yet in terms of um, technology, which is um, the extent to which we really value our privacy. Um, and again, you know, Singapore's a great case in point, very different culture, very different system. The issues that, that preoccupy citizens here about what might happen to their data, although not private data, of course, yeah. just data the government <laughs> might, might hold, you know, is not what preoccupies people in Singapore. So, um, yeah, I think there are, there are all sorts of possible futures that we could, um, we could imagine. Um, and those of us who care about democracy, I think, have to really think about which, which are the ones that are going to work best in that to exactly. preserve and support that that context. That's not a debate we've had before. Both of you have had stellar careers bridging the divide, or perhaps it's it's not a divide, just creating the bridge between policymaking and academia. What role do you think universities have to play in, in thinking about the future of the public service in Australia? The director of the corporate. <laughs> <laughs> An absolutely critical role is what we're looking for here. Well, um, of course, I'm going to say that. I mean, you wouldn't expect me to say anything else. Um, the challenge for us um, is how to be the the kind of public policy school that does the sort of research and provides the kind of education that is appropriate to the contexts that we've all been talking about and the potential futures that are, to some extent, still unknowable. So, you know, we're engaged in a um, a pretty deep process of um, reflection on across the board uh, of, of all of our activities to really think about, well, how are they um, relevant now, but also for the next five to 10 years? And um, that's it's a really great time to be director of Crawford School, but it, it's also a time in which we know that not just how we're going to be um, researching and, and teaching will change, but the, the what is, is, is also going to change. But, you know, what better time to be in a public policy school than a, a period when you have people who are arguing about the need to completely rethink what we think public service is. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, if you can't be a public servant, be a researcher. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the key things that's part of this we often undervalue is, of course, it's the students who are the carriers of the research. So we do research. It's research-led teaching. A whole generation hears about this, gets to think about it for themselves, and they are the ones that carry it forward. They might not implement the solutions that you would have preferred or research suggested, but they've understood the problem. And I had this wonderful moment 10 or 15 years after someone I'd taught graduated, he'd become a minister in the Howard government. And I ran into him in an airport lounge and he said, you know, that stuff you taught us about policymaking and government and stuff. And he said, it turned out to be pretty accurate. <laughs> With genuine sense of amazement, it was just great. But I thought, we've actually equipped you for the job you're now doing. We didn't know you were going to do that job, but we gave you a set of skills that have clearly mattered. It was a gratifying moment as a teacher. So a final question I want to turn back to the public service. If both of you 
had the opportunity to do one thing to make the public service fit for purpose for the decades ahead, what would it be? Well, I'll just say that what came in, into my head, and that's um, appointing more people who don't look like traditional public servants. So, you know, one of the things we know about decision making from research is that the more diverse a group, the better the decision, because you've got more worldviews, you've got different perspectives, you've got more opportunities to challenge. I think that would, uh, you know, the public service has come a long way, but it's still got a long way to go. I think that would really help. Mine would be a variation. I'd agree with that entirely. It'd be a variation and it's finding ways and incentives for really bright young people to see public service careers as desirable and worth their while. And part of that's about incentive. Part of it's about actually that being the reality that they are so worthwhile. And it's it's a diverse group. It's finding the coming generation and persuading them that Australia does have a great tradition. We are um, reluctantly um, actually quite skilled bureaucrats, um, but we need to do it differently and better, and we'll do that when the people who are coming through university now see you know, see the APS and all of the state and Commonwealth and local governments as places they'd like to work. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. It's I think we've reflected on some of the challenges ahead for the Australian public service, but also introduced hopefully a kind of hopeful note of how it might uh, rise to meet those. So Helen Sullivan and Glenn Davis, thanks so much for your time today. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Well, stay with us, listeners, because coming up in part two, we are going to be having a look at some of your great comments and questions and perhaps some of the not so great comments and questions too. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to Policy Forum Pod and thanks again so much to Helen Sullivan and Glenn Davis for what was, I think, a really interesting discussion there. What did you make of that, Sharon? Oh, that was just a fascinating discussion. I think hearing the combination of Glenn and Helen reflect on some of these things is is just a real treat. Um, and of course, that's the essence of Crawford. You know, some of the, the leading thinkers in the country talking through some of the most important issues we face. Yeah, it was a terrific discussion. And we are really keen to hear what you thought of the uh, what we talked about today, listeners. So please keep sending in that feedback, uh, all those questions and those comments. Reach us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum. Find us on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society or email podcast at policyforum.net. And we're going to go over some of the questions comments that you have sent in over the last week, either through Twitter or through Facebook or the comments that you've left on our website, policyforum.net. Check it out. Loads of great articles there at the moment. Uh, And one of the things that we're going to look at first is a podcast which was put out uh, last week on Monday. It's uh, Edwina Landau's brilliant The Brief series. And in it, she took a look at Australia's Banking Royal Commission. And in the podcast, uh, it looked at uh, whether the tales of, sort of greed and illegal behaviour in Australia's financial sector is a case of, as they uh, said on the podcast, bad apples or a whole bad barrel. And we've got a comment from John on Policy Forum. It's quite long, so I'm going to have to summarise. Um, and he starts off by saying the Banking Royal Commission is ridding corruption and fraud from what is meant to be a trusted system. But the 
Collecting fees for no service or fees from the dead is a narrow view. Systemic failure and structural weaknesses seem to be overlooked. So he goes on at some length and it's worth reading his comments. Very interesting. I think what he's talking about there, Sharon, is that what we're seeing in the financial services system are not individual instances, but you know, examples of sort of systemic failure and structural weaknesses. What do you make of it all? I think that's a fantastic comment from John. And I I would, as you say, encourage people to have a look at that whole comment. And I think one point I would make in response to to John's comment that the Royal Commission is ridding corruption and fraud from a trusted system, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think the Banking Royal Commission is exposing the the level of corruption and fraud that has taken place within what was meant to be a a trusted system. Um, And what's really important is what happens from here. Because if that system is to be trusted again, then people, you know, the, the, the citizens of this country need to know that we have taken steps to actually rid ourselves of that corruption and fraud. So it's it's what happens beyond that really matters now, I think. Well, the Commission's report, which was extensive, posed a lot of questions without actually, you know, making any recommendations in terms of policy. So it really will be interesting to see how our policymakers respond to that. But in the podcast interview we did, we just talked a lot about trust in institutions. And of course, this goes, you know, this is a big question for the banks. Have the banks totally lost the trust of the Australian public? It's pretty hard to imagine that there is anything like trust in the, the banking sector at the moment. I think there's a long haul ahead for the, the banking sector to rebuild that trust. Um, and and I think it it is also going to take outside intervention and regulation and oversight because levels of trust are so low and understandably so that relying on the banks to fix themselves is not something I think the people are going to accept. Yeah, that's right. Might be time to start hiding the money under the under the mattress. Back this, the, the money in the sock under the floorboard, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the next one I want to talk about is an article which was written by Amanda Jane George, Julianne Tarr and Alexandra McEwen. And it was called The Art of R&D Courtship. And the, the broad overview of what it was about was looking at Australia's innovation policy and how it's struggling to get past first date nerves, as they described it. It needs to focus on building long-term relationship or risk getting stuck in the research and development friend zone. Uh, And we got a comment from Sumi who wrote, Australia is not a leader in innovation, but it is a stable economy. If it struggles to innovate domestically, maybe it's better off using a strong economy to attract top talent from overseas. What do you think about that, Sharon? I don't think this is an either or in terms of whether you you aim to innovate domestically and foster domestic innovation and talent or whether you attract people from overseas. I mean, I think it's both. um, And that's what's what's needed. But I, I don't think it's necessarily the case that Australia is not a leader in innovation. Australia has had moments where it clearly has been a leader in innovation. Um, and we see that from, you know, Australia's role in the development of the World Wide Web, um, the work that, that CSIRO's done around a, you know, a whole range of really pressing issues. Um, Australia had an important early role in renewable energy. I think our problem is not so much that we're not a leader in innovation, but we don't always make the most of early developments and early innovations. So that's where I, I think we, um, 
we, we need to really make more of the opportunities that we have from innovation. But I, again, I don't think it's an either, either or. I think a stable economy that is also investing in innovation is, is a really positive thing. What about this idea of importing top talent from overseas? I mean, surely there would be a lot of countries that would be, you know, particularly developing countries, that would be quite concerned about the, uh, you know, the brain drain of some of their top talent being recruited to Australia. Yeah, look, I think that issue of the brain drain goes across a whole range of sectors, not just R&D, but you know, the healthcare sector is perhaps where the brain drain is particularly acute, where you see, you know, you look at some countries in sub-Saharan Africa and qualified doctors and nurses leaving, understandably, from an individual perspective to look for employment opportunities elsewhere. So that's an issue, I think, right right across many, many sectors. But I think in, in a very global environment, we shouldn't necessarily see this as a one-way movement where we attract the top people from overseas to Australia and, and that's it. I think this is really around the circulation of ideas and the circulation of people who have those great ideas and innovate so that we, you know, really promote a global culture of innovation. Now, maybe that is a bit fantasy land, a bit pie in the sky, but ideally, I think it's the movement of people and ideas that leads to innovation. So if Australia attracts people, and I think we should aim to attract talent from overseas, we shouldn't see that as a one-way ticket. Um, but what those people then take back and what are some of Australia's best and brightest take to, um, to, to, to other countries. A great comment there, Sumi, and a great comment from John previously. Thanks to both of those for sending them on. The third and final one I want to talk about is a piece that was published on Policy Forum this week. Uh, it was written by Cecilia Tortillada. Uh, it was called A Me Too Movement for Children, and in it she looked at how the Catholic Church is far from the only organisation with a dark history of abusing children within its care. Uh, and she writes that it's time to hold the not-for-profit sector in particular at large more accountable. And there's a comment from Riley who quotes a, a, a line from Cecilia's piece. And Cecilia has written in that piece, despite its failings, it should be acknowledged that the church also provides much-needed support to the downtrodden, disadvantaged and vulnerable people. And Riley's response to that is, well, the same could be said for the terrorist group Hamas in Palestine. When is the world going to accept that the small amount of good work done by institutionalised religion is far outweighed by the bad, sexual abuse, extremism, religious conflict, and above all, an unrelenting assault on people's critical thinking skills. Sharon, what do you think about that? Well, it, it's, it was a great article from Cecilia and a great comment from Riley. And I think there are so many issues in both the um, in, in what Cecilia wrote but and in what Riley has responded. Um, again, I think it, it's hard to, to do direct trade-offs here. Um, I remember years ago being in the Philippines and going there with a pretty critical view of the role of the Catholic Church when you think about you know, issues of women's access to sexual and reproductive health, um, the role that the, the Catholic Church had played in, in the Philippines in reinforcing some of the hierarchies that come from concentration of land ownership, all those issues. But then working or, or seeing a... Um, a group of Catholic nuns who were just doing phenomenal work within the community, but were also using really inventive ways of pushing back against the hierarchy of the church. And I guess they were coming from a position of their faith rather than a position of institutionalised religion. And, and that experience made me, 
I guess, really question my own criticisms. Uh, I think um, Riley's right. We could say that almost any organisation is is a mix of of good and bad. Um, And where do we draw the line in terms of of what's outweighed? But I would go back to Celia's comment um, that we need to hold institutions to account for the people who are in their care. And that's particularly an issue for children who are in the care of institutions. And this is not just an historical issue. You know, we see this um, going on in countries around the world where children are, in, in inverted commas, cared for by institutions, but their vulnerability to abuse or their experience of abuse is just you know, incredibly high. Um, and we see in Australia ongoing challenges with children who are in out-of-home care and particularly Indigenous children who are removed from their families, put into the care of the state. And when we talk about the care of the state, we're talking about the care of outsourced organisations. We go back to the comment that Glyn and Helen were making about the extent of um, government services that are now outsourced. So I think this issue of accountability is absolutely crucial. Um, whether it's a, a Me Too movement along the lines of what we've seen or perhaps something a little different, um, and I think for children something a little different, I think Celia's right. We've, we've got to hold organisations to account and we have to see this not as an historical issue but an ongoing issue. Yeah, it was a great question. So thanks so much, Riley, for sending that in and uh, everyone else who got in contact with us. We really appreciate all of these questions and comments. So thoughtful and uh, your questions in particular in uh, in terms of the main interview we did really helped us out and make us look perhaps a little bit smarter than we are, Sharon. Absolutely. Even though we are very smart, Martin. <laughs> uh, Sharon, I have actually got some exciting news to share do you listen to the National Security Podcast? Of course you do. Uh, religiously, but Riley, not in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> so the National Security Podcast, uh, as you would know, comes out once a fortnight. It's produced by Chris Farnham um, and it comes out through Policy Forum. Chris does a brilliant job uh, interviewing all sorts of really interesting pe- people about the huge range of uh, national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific region this week. He talked to Jim Clapper, no less. Um, fascinating interview, well worth a listen. But that's not the big news. The big news is that next week, from Tuesday onwards, we are going to be producing for one week daily national security podcasts. How about that? Once that, every day. That's extraordinary. That is so exciting. That will give us something to fill our week with in the most fabulous way. <laughs> tell exactly. me, who's who's going to be interviewed? Do we know? Well, I can't tell you that. It's a big secret at the moment. But what I can tell you is it's all based around a theme because next week the National Security has a Women in National Security conference. So Chris uh, and a bunch of other people there are going to be talking to some of the people who are taking part in that conference. The conference is completely sold out, right? So you can't get along to the conference. This is the way that you can get access to the expertise. I'm really excited about it. Uh, and also slightly daunted about the uh, idea of producing a podcast on a daily basis. That is going to be slightly exhausting. But for our listeners and for me, who's not going to be in the hot seat, really exciting. So I'm going to be listening. Good. That's good to know. And I hope, uh, listeners, you will be listening too. Just look for uh, National Security Podcast on whatever platform it is that you listen, or you can find it on our website, policyforum.net. So again, a huge thank you to everyone who has commented. And a reminder to keep sending those comments in. Uh, that also includes suggestions for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. We are all always excited to hear your ideas and what 
types of things you might like us to cover. And you can reach us on Twitter, Apps Policy Forum, find us on Facebook, Asia Pacific Policy Society, or shoot us through an email podcast at policyforum.net. And if you enjoyed today's episode, and if you made it this far, I'm going to presume that perhaps you might have enjoyed it, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes about 30 seconds. It's a huge help to us in getting the word out about the podcast. And while you're there, you might want to find that fifth star because that also is a is a big help in terms of uh, getting the word out. But we'll be back next Friday with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Mark, And that's bye-bye from me, Sharon Bessel. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.